This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, which we use to sail the seas and make sense of the fascinating new era that we find ourselves in. And today is one of unrelenting tragedy. I can't tell you what it was like being a young realist in Washington at the time of Colin Powell. He was the closest thing we had to Dwight Eisenhower. Steady, capable, reliable, ultimately sensible, the last grown-up standing in the room, Powell had excelled at every position he'd held through a great number of Republican presidents, from Reagan to George Herbert Walker Bush and into the time of George W. Bush. And as the Iraq war clouds gathered, as the neocons were increasingly in the ascendancy, having won over formerly realists, former realists such as Dick Cheney, and Donald Rumsfeld, who had instead been seduced by the easy answers of the Wolfowitzes of the world, Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl, that everything would be simple, that we could drain the Middle East swamp, that we could promote democracy at the point of the barrel of a gun. We all counted on Powell to stop the lunacy, stop the post 9-11 madness from occurring. And in this moment of supreme importance, the Shakespearean tragedy of Colin Powell is that he was a good man who did nothing. And most of the calamities that have resulted, the 20-year cul-de-sac, the tragedy of endless interventions and endless wars in the Middle East for so little strategic gain and with so little strategically to show for it, really could be traced to this man being a good soldier rather than a great statesman, which is what we needed. It is nothing less than a Shakespearean tragedy for Paul and for the rest of us who put our faith in him and were forced to then fend for ourselves, making our own strategic decisions, in my case, resigning over the Iraq and Afghanistan wars because of the obvious folly that would result. It was clear to me, even at the time, that an invasion of Iraq would fail, that the three groups would not be reconciled, that you could not force them into some sort of settlement, a centralized settlement, when there were three definite ethno-religious groups in the Sunni, the Shia, and the Kurds. The decentralization would suit this, that we would overly centralize, that we would force democracy on them with the barrel of a gun, that the war would cost the lives of 100,000 Iraqis. I said it's more like a quarter million, thousands of Americans, that we would destabilize the former ruling Sunni minority. Indeed, ISIS resulted that we would destroy Iraq, thereby making Iran the dominant power in the Gulf, that we'd spend a trillion dollars. All of this, I said, between 2003-2006, when I quit in principle over the wars. All of this came to pass, and all of this could be avoided if the most popular man in the country at the time, Colin Powell, and his ally, the CIA director George Tenet, had refused to sign off on the obviously bogus claims that there were weapons of mass destruction. And instead of doing that, Powell went to the UN, put his vast credibility behind the neoconservative spurious examples of weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist as a casus belli, a reason to go to war, and instead put his credibility behind that of his enemies, leading America into a 20-year cul-de-sac while China began to rise and rise and rise, unbeknownst to the rest of us. I lost my job over this. Many, many more lost their lives and had people die over this. And this could have been avoided if one good man had done something. Indeed, the Burkean quote, though it's apocryphal like most good quotes, 
is all it takes for evil to win in the world is for enough good men to do nothing. The reason this apocryphal quote has lasted is because it's true. Let me repeat it. All it takes for evil to win in the world is for enough good men to do nothing. The Shakespearean tragedy of Powell is that he was a good man who did nothing. Let's look at his resume, and you could say why we young realists vested such hopes in the man. He was the first African-American Secretary of State, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He died this past week at 84 from COVID-related complications, which is why we're having this kind of reassessment of Powell. Um, he served two, two tours in Vietnam, uh, becoming a national hero by leading Operation Desert Storm under George Herbert Walker Bush and propounding the Powell Doctrine, a direct result of his seeing the army being destroyed by Vietnam. He said that the United States should only go to war when it had overwhelming force behind it and when it had the backing of its people, which a needed corrective from the Vietnam lunacy and indeed from promiscuous wars of choice. We should only go to war when we had overwhelming force, meaning we build up forces. So this was obviously a major strategic interest. And secondly, when we had the domestic overwhelming backing of the people back home to see us through the good and bad days of the war. This he managed to do in textbook fashion in the first Gulf War, which was a resounding success, chasing Saddam out of Kuwait, stopping his efforts to destabilize and dominate Saudi Arabia and thus the Middle East. And Powell was the national hero who made this plan happen. And indeed, the ghost of Vietnam was laid to rest because of what Powell himself did, uh, which was textbook. We had overwhelming force. We had overwhelming public support. He was America's youngest four-star general at the time, which was a long way from his parents immigrating from Jamaica, deciding instead of going to the UK to come to the United States. What a version of the American dream Powell represented. He was raised in a tenement in the tough neighborhood of the South Bronx, and he went on to hold almost every high strategic office other than president, which might have been his for the taking in 1996, when he was the most popular man in the country. Polling showed that he was well ahead of the incumbent Bill Clinton, but he chose not to run because his wife suffered from depression, was a very private person, and thought Powell had done enough for the country. He was Reagan's national security advisor at the height of the Cold War climax and coming to a peaceful end, chairman of the Joint Chiefs under the first Bush and secretary of state under W. The first African-American to hold any of these posts, breaking the color barrier decisively uh, for people like Condoleezza Rice and then later Barack Obama as president. Again, in 1996, the ring itself might have been his for the taking, where he was easily more popular than Clinton or indeed anyone else, but because of family considerations, he decided not to go do this. However, the second Gulf War was to be his undoing, and in Shakespearean fashion, at the height of his fame, calamity struck. With the 2003 invasion of Iraq, even though he personally believed this to be uh, dangerously misguided, he went along with the neocons Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz and Pearl, who should be put to shame now and put his prestige on the line by unequivocally asserting that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction and was indeed an imminent threat to the United States. His UN speech, as he later admitted, which is the ultimate Shakespearean tragedy, 
to realize the hero realizing he's done something that cannot be undone anymore. He himself said, it's a blot. It will always be part of my record. It was painful. It's painful now. This is a long way from being wounded in Vietnam when he said that war should be the politics of last resort after Vietnam to wars of choice being the second Gulf War, which led to neoconservative calamity. Again, at 42, he had been the Army's youngest general. With Caspar Weinberger, he helped to lead to a massive increase in defense spending under Reagan. In 1987, in the wake of Iran-Contra, he becomes National Security Advisor. He seems calm, authoritative, and articulate. As chairman of the Joint Chiefs under the senior Bush, he redesigned U.S. forces after the collapse of the USSR, making them fully capable of fighting two regional wars at the same time. This became the benchmark of that era. In the first Gulf War, which was his high point, his zenith, the U.S. amassed 500,000 troops in Saudi Arabia under Powell while maintaining an alliance around him and maintaining popular support in line with the Powell Doctrine. Uh, this all he managed to do. Uh, but 9-11 uh, became the key moment. Cheney and Rumsfeld went from their former realist positions to following that of the neoconservatives. Um, at the time, the neoconservative argument, and I well remember it from being in Washington, was the United States is uniquely powerful and the United States is uniquely vulnerable. And this was the impetus to act, to drain the swamp, as the neoconservatives said, to reset the dominoes because the United States had it in its power to remake the Middle East at the barrel of a gun. Uh, this went against everything in line with the Powell Doctrine. This wasn't fighting a specific country so much as trying to remake an entire region, ignoring its specific history, culture, sociology, ethnology, economics, political culture, everything. That we would simply remake it because we were terrorized. Uh, President, he pushed President uh, George W. Bush to resolve the matter through diplomatic means to give the UN inspectors more time, losing bureaucratic battle after battle to Cheney, who was vice president, and Rumsfeld, the secretary of defense at the time. He pushed to have UN approval for military action, lost that one as well. And yet, despite losing on all these seminal points, it didn't occur to Powell that resignation was called for. This was the beginning of the end of something that was in traditional American political culture and that has been lost. If you lose fight after fight after fight after fight over seminal matters, not peripheral matters, one ought to resign and one ought to make one's case to the country. Now, nobody resigns. They have to be leaving the Oval Office, kind of clenching the wall and being pulled away as they go. We've lost the notion that honorable men, and Paul certainly was this, that's the tragedy. Not that he was a venal man, a corrupt man, a wicked man, or even a misguided man. He saw what was happening in Iraq, but that he failed to go was the key problem. After losing on all these votes, he stuck around. And George Tenet, the CIA director, has since said that he was willing to walk out the door with Paul. Now imagine this, and this is what we young realists thought would happen that this bogus weapons of mass destruction dossier that was going to be read to the UN. If Powell said, I simply don't believe it, I'm resigning on a matter of principle, 
and the CIA director follows him, as Tenet has suggested he would do, on a matter of principle, we simply wouldn't have gone to war. The most popular man in the country, the repository of the country's trust in national security matters, and the head of the CIA in charge of intelligence gathering, if they both walk out, walk out the door over this bogus dossier that had been compiled with all the qualifying words taken out of it by the neocons, that Saddam might have weapons of mass destruction, that it was possible that this would be a threat to the region and more largely to the United States. All the qualifying words are taken out. All the adverbs, all the adjectives are taken out, leaving us only with the bare bones. They do have it. We're absolutely sure. And Powell, at this key moment, with Tennant waiting in the wings to go with him, doesn't resign. And instead, one of the most trusted figures in the Western world, and certainly in George W. Bush, Bush's administration, was per persuaded to present this dubious dossier as incontrovertible evidence at the UN Security Council in February 2003. The invasion went ahead. No weapons of mass destruction, of course, were found, and Powell's reputation never recovered. He resigned quietly at the end of Bush's first term, uh, and he referred to the neoconservatives at the time, rightly, as crazies, as utopians. And this was the point I made in ethical realism. These are not Burkean conservatives. These are Robespierre's in love with democratic peace theory of Immanuel Kant, the theory that if everyone in the world is a democracy, there will never be war because democracies never go to war with one another. Now talk about an academic rather than a practical theory. Let's think about this for a moment. Has there ever been a moment in history when the world has been populated entirely by democracies? Or when even every great power, forget the small countries, every great power has been a democracy? Never. Look at the present world we live in. The United States is a superpower. It's a democracy. China's a superpower. It's not a democracy. Russia's a great power. It's not a democracy. The other great powers, the Anglosphere, is a democracy. The EU's a technocratic state, barely democratic, but the countries that make it up are democracies. Japan's a democracy. India's a democracy. It's a mixed bag. And this has been true of every single minute of recorded history. And the neocons instead said, well, we'll just make everyone into democracy. We believe in Kant's democratic peace theory. And if we can reconstruct everyone as a democracy, just add water and you get George Washington, we will then get what we want, a peaceful world forever. This sounds like Saint-Just or Robespierre. This is absolute lunacy. It ignores that not everyone is suited at every given minute to be a democracy. How do I know this is true? Because I have 3,000 to 5,000 years of recorded history to back me up. Every single moment of those 5,000 years from Pharaonic Egypt, hardly a democracy, through the Minoan civilization, run by monarchies, hardly a democracy, on to now, where we have a mixed bag. Every single moment of recorded history has a mixed bag. Meaning more is at work here than merely having elections and at gunpoint installing people who are then just seen as stooges of the occupying power. Powell saw all this. He saw the lunacy of this idea that you add water and get George Washington. And yet he did nothing. To the apocryphal Burke quote, he was a good man who let evil triumph because he did nothing. 
And in, in, in following this lunacy of Kantian democratic peace theory, we thought it would be simple to make Iraq, Afghanistan. I remember going to a meeting with Richard Pearl where it was suggested we should get going on Syria because it would be so easy in Iraq and Afghanistan. We should be ready to move on to Syria. And I remember going to the meeting and saying to Pearl, I must have taken crazy pills to come to this meeting. But I was junior at this time and I was sticking my neck out far enough that the neocons were prepared to cut it off. Although that might be noble, it was in the end a failure and was obviously going to be a failure. I felt like Hector in the Iliad. I fought the good fight every day knowing that I was going to lose. There's a certain kind of bravery in that, but it was not going to change policy. The only thing that would have changed this ruinous, obvious outcome that Powell rightly refers to the neocons as crazy because democratic peace theory is crazy because it doesn't have a single day of recorded history behind it. And the idea that you can simply remake countries that have never been democratic. Iraq's never been a country. It was three Ottoman satrapies, separate provinces that were put together for British imperial convenience. Afghanistan has never been a country. And so even if, if they were countries, which they never have been, they weren't democratic countries. So this fails on about 60 levels, and it ignores the specific history of specific areas of the world, as though we all develop at the same pace, the same speed, the same time, and reach the same outcome, which again, history utterly refutes. The world is more fascinating and complicated than that. And the neocons, in their utopian Robespierreist craziness, tried to make what was very complicated very simple. Powell saw this, and he did nothing. At the time that he was the most popular man in the country, the most trusted man in the country, and at that key UN Security Council meeting, if he'd walked out the door and refuted the democratic peace delusions of Wolfowitz and Pearl and Rumsfeld, and Cheney. And instead, tragically, he went along with it. I remember that November, that February 2003 is among the saddest times in my life because I knew that he, after Powell, it would not be stopped, that the train would go on right off the cliff into the abyss and that we would tragically have catastrophe follow us. A catastrophe we're just now beginning to climb out of 20 years later. I take no joy in this. I know Powell and the people around him. I know Powell a little. I knew him a little. I know the people around him rather better. And everyone said to me the same thing after the calamity of Iraq. The man is in agony. The man suffered in Shakespearean terms from the knowledge that what he'd done or not done in this case couldn't be undone and that all that followed came from this key Shakespearean moment, this key Shakespearean failure. I take no joy in saying this. I was happy and ready to work for Powell for president in 1996. He was R. Eisenhower, the competent, moderate, decent, patriotic, high rising through the meritocratic army in both cases. And here was a man ideally suited to run the country. And instead, at the key moment when he could have saved the country, so much agony, he failed to act. Indeed, as the Burke's apocryphal quote goes, all it takes for evil to win in the world is for enough good men to do nothing. For all the many successes and glories of Powell's career, 
he will be remembered as a Shakespearean tragedy when a good man did nothing to terrible consequence. Thank you for listening to this Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, our retrospective on the tragedy that was Colin Powell. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, For those of you who did, please subscribe. Uh, So many of you have, and we're incredibly grateful that you take time with us every week to make sense of the world as we see it. Um, I've enjoyed taking this journey with you and look forward to doing this for many, many years to come. Please do subscribe. Keep subscribing. It's great. And for those of you who have subscribed, please, please, please give the Starbucks fee. $7 a month, $70 a year. It's literally nothing. It's a cup of coffee, which I'm about to have now. And I think that we're well worth that. For those of you who enjoy this, listen to this regularly, please do give. Substack is a wonderful vehicle for free thought in a world with increasingly little free thought. I love the platform. I love that we're doing more on it, but we're soon going to take a lot of the content and move it over as one does to the paid subscribers. We don't want to leave you behind. We want you to come with us. If you really enjoy the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, the Patrick Henry podcast, uh, the book serialization, our best-selling book to dare more boldly. We're making it through. We're nearing the end now. Um, we have Khrushchev to go, then the Rolling Stones, which should be great. Harold Macmillan, the conclusion before we move on to another best-selling book I wrote called The Godfather Doctrine. If you enjoy any of this, please do give that Starbucks fee so we can keep doing more and more of this as increasingly I devote myself to Substack and to you. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this.